Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello, you're listening to Politics on the Couch, the podcast that looks at politics from a recumbent position, I suppose, on the couch. Phil in Hove. Does, does that make sense? Can we say that as an intro or is that weird? No, that's fine. That's fine by me. I can tell that you've been off for a little while. You're not quite into the groove yet. You haven't been reading anything about new, about politics for the last week or so. Is that right? You haven't touched it. Well, when did you... When, How long have you been off and when did you get back into it? Well, I haven't been completely detached from the world of politics. It's kind of impossible. But no, I have been away for a week. And increasingly, I find that the the condition of being on holiday is defined less by whether you actually go somewhere else and more by how able you are to switch off from the sort of digital realm and not actually, in my case... Subject yourself to too much news and information, which I managed to do quite well this time. Uh, the crucial to that is not looking at social media and uh, not looking at email, which I'm getting more disciplined at. Um, and it's quite interesting because it means you end up consuming news uh, probably a, a lot more the way a lot of people actually do who aren't journalists don't have to do this for a living. So when you're sort of driving along uh, and the news comes on on the hour on the radio that's all the information you get and you you glean that and you have to resist the temptation to immediately pick up your phone and start calling people which is a lot easier to resist when you're driving obviously but even then you have to resist the temptation not to pull over into a lay-by and immediately start calling people up and saying what, what's going on what, what is this does this mean what i think it means uh but i managed to resist that temptation so it's not a total detox then you still you're still roughly aware of what's going on yeah and the thing I find useful about it is it is a perspective giving exercise because things that can appear very salient and important at one given moment in the week, even by the end of the week, uh, are, are no longer as big as they might have been. So a great example on the day that I decided I was on holiday uh, in the afternoon, it, it was reported that Boris Johnson was saying you know, prepare for a no deal Brexit. And it, under ordinary circumstances, you know, that would have been the you know, sirens blaring in my head and immediately fire up the laptop and, you know, full operational, you know, jump down the fireman's pole of Brexit anxiety and, and rush out, uh, you know, all hoses squirting. <laughs> It's a terrible, terrible metaphor. You see, I'm awfully off my metaphor game as well. But anyway, you, you get the picture. Um, <laughs> How do you get back into your metaphors? Is there a sort of routine you have to do? Yeah, to do a sort of workout. I can't scramble back up the fireman's pole of this metaphor now that I've slid down it. So let's let's keep running with it. Um, but anyway, the, to get back to the point I was trying to make, I managed to at that moment think, hmm. Well, we'll see. The Boris Johnson says a lot of this stuff quite often, and I'll believe it when I see it. I reckon what he means is, uh, I'm a bit annoyed about the fact that the EU in their last summit made it sound like it was my job to have to compromise, and I don't. Uh, that's a 
wounds my pride as prime minister and as Brexiteer in chief. So I have to make equivalently punchy noises. But actually, I reckon this is Raf now thinking, and I reckon they'll still be talking and the talks are still on. Uh, and sure enough, by the time I get back from my digital semi detox, um, talks are still on and it was all just bluff. And it's good to have a week to realize that sometimes, you know, what seems like news on Monday isn't even news anymore by Friday. And um, what, what do you find is the easiest way to get back into the swing of things, sort of work out what's actually been going on? Because I suppose you could go to your usual sources, but then you might find out you're just getting one perspective. Have you got a particular tried and tested method to just get a weekly catch up? Well, it's pretty handy coming because uh, I sort of emerged back into the world of news uh, on Friday, which coincides with Gogglebox on Friday night, which is perfect. Because <laughs> you basically, yeah, it's Friday evening, sit down, maybe pour yourself a glass of wine with the family. Obviously, don't pour wine for the whole family. The children aren't allowed to drink wine yet. But anyway, we watch a bit of Gogglebox and they, everything you need to know that's really salient about what's going to happen in politics that week is there provided for you. Uh, and 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 sure enough, this week, it was very good. They had talked you through the tier system for new COVID restrictions. Uh, there was the footage of Michael Gove being kind of oleaginous and Michael Govish uh, on Mar uh, and the suitably appalled response from the Gogglebox commentary squad. It was brilliant. It does everything you needed to do. Is that the, uh, the footage you're interested in on the commentary from the, uh, the actual participants, which is more useful? All of it. There's definitely, I certainly know MPs who rely on Gogglebox as a sort of rolling focus group of what's what is the, the sort of reactions or, or they monitor it in terms of yeah that tallies with what my constituents are sort of saying as well it's 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 generally seen not universally but it's commonly seen as as a not bad uh, touchstone of of how people are responding radio as well is the other good one because what you need to get into a short radio news broadcast when people are very often, I remember actually it was uh, now someone who's left politics, but quite a senior uh, front bench Labour MP once saying to me that you've you've got to always think about what the people who turn the radio dial down when the news comes on are thinking, what what information, what news is cutting through to them when they're actively news avoiding. Uh, that's how you measure it, and it's true. So, if you, I've had sort of classic FM on in the car, and if you put yourself in the mind of someone who is just desperate to get to the slow movement of a Rachmaninoff piano concerto to you know ease their woes, and they really don't want to hear about Brexit and COVID, but the news comes on and has a very short window in which to insert some necessary but unpleasant information into their world. That is going to be the most salient information politically that you know me on holiday needs to know about for the next 48 hours. And it does the job. Got me thinking now because um, it's probably a topic for another edition of this podcast, but every single um, BBC broadcast now, I, mean, I guess it's probably not just BBC, maybe all the other channels too, starts off with a tally. This is the number of new cases. This is, and you just think, what is that doing to people that every single headline is about that it's just like after a while i switch off you know god i can't take this anymore another another number another every single bulletin has it at, at, at the top i heard the, a unique thing in my experience where actually i did listen to a bit of bbc radio 4 listen to pm on one day which properly broke my digital my deep news detox that's getting that's full immersion uh but it they had live the um briefing on the new some new element of the lockdown and they had the slideshow where they show you know the graphs and what the cases are doing but on the radio I thought this is fantastically terrible radio <laughs> this is someone showing slides saying next slide please as you can see from this thing i'm showing you on the radio <laughs> i thought this is uh, this is only in moments of extreme crisis would a, a broadcaster say we're going to broadcast a, ser a a powerpoint presentation where you can't see the slides and and that 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 was a really good measure of how weird that the news has become in 2020 for me maybe it's because they, they, everyone spent so much time on teams or zoom that they assume every single slideshow everyone's watching you know somehow the, the sort of the visual uh world we're living has changed anyway 
We have waffled on a bit, haven't we? Um, we, what we, <laughs> we really have. Should we, should, we, should we talk about, we've got a guest. Should we talk about the guest? Let's not talk about my, my sort of yeah. pseudo holiday that involves basically just trying not to find out what's going on, even though that's what I do for a living. Uh, and instead... So you are ready. You're ready and prepared for your um, next week of uh, whatever whatever's going to be thrown at you. Yeah, I'm locked and loaded. Wait, wait, wait. I'm, yeah, yeah, good. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I don't even know what that means. I've never, never held a firearm in my life, locked and loaded. Yeah. Um, all right, guest. So the way that we're going to introduce this guest is that I am going to. Um, we had some, we, um, we we've had some very nice reviews about the show, um, which I hope the tone of my voice doesn't sound like I'm surprised by saying that. But yes, we have, and there's one particular uh, review which caught my eye. Which, um, if I was better prepared, I'd I would read out to you straight away. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pretend to read it straight away, but I'm just going to pause a moment, and find it, and then, and then this review will hopefully lead us into this into the next guest. So let's let me. Which is like me to sort of busk. Should we pretend <laughs> it's like the, in a royal wedding when it's sort of Hugh Edwards yeah. has to just fill air with people, sort of say, and, and there's an extraordinary hat on the. I believe that is the Marquis of. Uh, nor is that no. Or is that a fascinator? Um, and oh, and look, there's someone, some minor royal. There's Zora Phillips's nanny. The pushing mm. a particularly splendid pram with gilt edged wheels you're doing you're doing a very good job in fact, in, in, in the, next um, slide um, please <laughs> in the time it's taken for you to do that we've, we've had another uh, another rating on apple actually okay um, let's hear it so um well it's, it's no it's one of those it's not it's not a written rating it's just another five stars um we'll take that Okay, okay, so if I open up this thing now, so this is all in real time, this is. The ratings and reviews. Let's make sure we read the right one. Um, yeah, I loved your show until you started pretending to be Edwards talking about <laughs> we can cut, we can cut that guilt-edged strollers. <laughs> we, we can cut that bit out. Um, here we go. This is um, from uh, Mr. Thresh, Threshold Weller. It feels like a bit like the Adam and Joe show, except for it's all positive stuff, not reading out horrible things from the internet. I should do it in a Northwestern accent because he's from the Northwest. Of Please England. don't. Uh, okay. <laughs> I've listened to a, a couple of these. The most recent one with Fintan O'Toole this morning. I'm 69, living in the Northwest of England, interested in the world and what is happening and how things change. The last few years, I have felt at odds with a number of my friends, relations and neighbours as they have become more polarised or are disinterested. This podcast is a bit of solace, intelligent discussion rather than emotive sound bites. Highly recommended. So that is um, the segue for you to introduce yeah, our guest. Except, except now I feel really guilty because we've just spent 10 minutes in, in, spouting inane drivel about my failure to have a proper holiday. Uh, and there's someone saying. We won't use, none of that's going to be used, don't worry. Okay, we'll, you'll edit all of that out. Good. Right. Well, it, that is really heartening to hear because that is that comment. I mean, because that is slightly why we did this, right? We started this podcast because it was locked down and we wanted to just actually go, if not a little bit deeper, just, you know, get back, get on the couch and really think about the way that politics you know, works and gets into people's heads and, and find interesting people who could talk a little bit deeper about how it really works. And I did talk specifically about that question of how you get, for want of a better word, safe spaces in which to interact on on points of political conflict with today's guest, uh, who's Emma Crew. She is the Professor of Social Anthropology at SOAS at the University of London. She is the first person to have done an anthropological study of the UK Parliament. She began spending two years, I think, in the Lords, uh, embedded in that institution, studying the people who work there, their environment. Uh, she then did a study uh, a little bit later, a couple of years later, of the Commons. Uh, she's an int good introduction to her work, fantastic little slim volume, uh, it's not long at all and really accessible, called Commons and Lords, a short anthropology of Parliament. Uh, which really captures a lot of what she found there. I mean, you have to remember that anthropology traditionally is the business of um, studying cultures and societies, the way humans, the human animal operates uh, as a social being in different environments. And Emma Crew had 
I think this tremendous insight, uh, which was to think, well, why don't we treat Parliament as the the ecosystem, the environment in which this peculiar tribe of people, politicians, operate, and try and understand the institution from that point of view, which is very different from the way most political analysis approaches it. And we thought exactly the sort of thing we want to hear about on this podcast, uh, because there's so much psychology and anthropology, and so much psychology is driven by the space that you're in and the rituals that societies uh, rely upon to allow uh, interaction uh, and cultural exchange to happen. Uh, so I was really glad that she agreed to talk to me and we had a quite a long conversation, which ended up getting onto that question of to what extent are politicians like other people or unlike in quotes, normal people? And how do you create environments where actually political differences and the human side of of politics and the human component within politicians can be allowed to express itself. So this is me in conversation with Professor Emma Krupp. It would be really interesting to hear how an anthropologist ended up in Parliament, both how you ended up uh, in in the building, which I think is itself must have been quite a process, uh, and also why you were interested enough to want to get into that building. I'd spent many years working in international development NGOs, and I was quite a kind of angry young woman and um, was trying to combat poverty. And uh, I got really frustrated and disillusioned with the development industry. And I thought, well, anthropologists are always kind of trying to work with and champion the rights of people who are very marginalised or whatever. And I thought, well, maybe actually we should study powerful people. And I, I was really shocked when I had a little look in the literature how few people had studied Parliament. So there was one Frenchman called Marc Abiles. He'd done a really interesting study, but no one this was this was undiscovered territory. So I went into the House of Lords. I'd, I'd had arguments throughout my childhood about abolishing the House of Lords with my, my father. And so I was a bit intrigued to see what it was really like. I walked into, I managed to get an interview with the clerk of the Parliament, walked into his beautiful white sort of um, wood panelled room and uh, said, can I can I do a study here, please? And he, he gave me a very delicious glass of white wine. Let's be clear, because presumably it's the House of Lords. There's a glass of white wine probably before lunch, right? Exactly, exactly. It was noon sharp. And uh, so it was time to crack open a bottle of Sauvignon. And I was really shocked because NGO workers would never drink in the daytime. So it was already a bit of a cultural leap. And he, he, I think he's totally mystified about what anthropology was. But anyway, he, he listened with great patience. And I think the House of Lords are always quite pleased to get anyone interested. And so you gained this, this unique, unprecedented access, observing politicians, first the Lords and, and later the Commons, uh, in what we both know is a very unusual workplace. I mean, really a unique physical and cultural environment. Uh, and that's really why I wanted to talk to you about this question that's been bothering me for a while about what you might call homo politicus, the type of person that goes into politics and how distinct they are or are perceived to be from, in quotes, normal people. There's a very interesting thing written by an ex-MP about the traumatic experience of um, running for election for the first time and all the effort you put into that and you have this constituency manager who who's sort of helping you through this stuff and and you are basically the talent you're the rock star who's being who's going from stage to stage performing and this is your little uh your constituency is your arena and everyone knows who you are and then as you just described um you know you can be liked or admired or disliked but there's there was at least until recently a, a base level of civility that went on in that and then you win and you go to the House of Commons in triumph. You sort of proceed down to London and you turn up and you are no one. You are nothing. You're lobby fodder. You're just sort of sitting at the back of a green bench and no one knows who you are. And there's 649 other people just like you and you're a new kid at school. And the shock to their ego and the contrast between who you are in your constituency and who you are in this big Hogwarts type place that is the House of Commons really frankly messes with their heads. 
I agree. And I think lots have sort of the kind of imposter syndrome. So I think that is the first reaction of lots and lots of people. And it's very difficult to get trained as an MP because it's such a chaotic mixture of different types of work. And again, I think this is probably true if you're a journalist or if you're an academic, but I think it's even more true for MPs that, you know, doing things like poring over legislation and having those legal skills is very different from campaigning on the streets and very different from the Citizens Advice Bureau mode. So there are all these different modes. They're not separable. They're all interconnected. And and I think what MPs have to develop as a an incredible skill even more than the rest of us, is to become shapeshifters. So I I think it needs a kind of imagination, actually, and, and politics requires imagination in all kinds of ways. Um, and I realised this in the way that anthropologists do, not because I did a survey, but because I was sitting one day um, with Tom Goldsmith, actually, who's a clerk, he's now clerk of the committees, and I was sitting with him and I was asking him um, about, you know, how committees work. And uh, along came an MP and he he glanced at my pass because I had an, a, an official's pass, confusingly. So he assumed I was, you know, like Tom, a clerk or something. And he started joking about how Tom was mentally unstable and saying to me, oh, you've got to be careful, this guy, you know, he's really unstable. You know, how's it going, Tom, with your shrink? And he was joshing like this. and I was really confused. I was thinking, what on earth is this guy on about? Anyway, um. Tom intervened at one point and said, oh, Mr. So-and-so, this is Emma Crewe. She's from the University of London. She's writing a book. <laughs> and I have never seen anyone shapeshift so fast in my life. He was, you know, he stood bolt upright. He shook my hand. He said, uh, Dr. Crewe, I'm extremely pleased to meet you. If I can help you in any way at all, that would be absolutely fine. And I thought, God, what? I was so confused. So I said to Tom afterwards, what, what was all that about? And he said, that is the life of an MP. They're doing that all day long. They're sizing up their audience. They're working out what kind of political moment they're in, and they're and they're making adjustments. That is... So I went from from being an official, who was somebody who I you know I could josh around with because you get quite matey on the select committees, to an academic who might write about him in a book. Reputation is suddenly at stake. That is so interesting and so familiar as well. I do find it. First of all, I love the detail of the clocked the past. I mean, people listening to this might not realise that the, the House of Commons passes that we all wear are colour coded. So you can see from a distance, you know, I have the sort of maroon, dark brown one that is a lobby pass. And so immediately it says you're a journalist and people will respond to you differently. And uh, that sense of you know, when I do get a glimpse of or because like, you observe people interacting with each other, often from different parties, in a way that however close or, or intimate your contact with an MP contact or source might be as a journalist, you never get access to that idiom, that style, uh, as the, the shape that they can shift into when they're not engaging with journalists. Yeah, of course. We It's very difficult for us to pretend to be what we're not particularly if it's if we're labelled with something like a pass or whatever, or it goes back to this space thing. I mean, it's really important, isn't it, which spaces you can get into. It's easier in the House of Lords because it's like a village. And I was allowed to go absolutely anywhere, with the exception of Bishop's Bar. And I even became kind of part of the crossbench peers group. So I'd go to their meetings every week. I sat in the de- in a, you know, I had a desk in one of their rooms. And yeah, I just got involved in the gossip because actually gossip is like the best research material that's how you find out what's going on so being a good researcher uh means that you need to navigate your way into the informal spaces so that you can chat to people and they they they're sort of off guard and they they think of you as somebody who's an insider or part insider at least rather than totally outsider there's a very interesting phenomenon, which is the Strangers Bar, which is called the Strangers Bar, because that's sort of the place where where people who aren't actually part of the the Commons or the sort of the Parliament uh, institution are allowed to go and drink. And even then, in theory, they are only allowed there you know, as a guest of someone from Parliament. Um, but what's interesting is over time, certain it's a very embedded lobby correspondence 
have acquired the sort of informal right to being strangers anyway, unaccompanied. So you can just sort of rock up there if you're enough of a face, if you see what I mean. So there is, and and the extent to which, as you just, as you say, that the, you know, what your privileges are, is like, you know, there's this huge um, sort of like Dustonbury festival of politics and what kind of wristband you have and how far backstage you're actually allowed to go is incredibly important. You know, the lobby pass lets you go to the mem- to members lobby, which traditionally was where, you know, when people would spill out from votes and then they would gossip with the correspondents. Um, but there is a th- sort of an, uh, an invisible threshold where at members lobby, where if you go a bit too close to the the chamber end uh and the the, the seats of seated statue i think it is there of churchill you've crossed the line and then a policeman will basically come up to you and say you can't come this close <laughs> you have to be at that end of the room um it's very interesting how how those power dynamics play out in terms of the space and it's very cramped space and what that's doing uh to the, the sort of the minds of the people who are operating in that space who all the time are aware of what's my role here and how do i project it say in the chamber as distinct from in a corridor as distinct from in a tv studio that's so interesting i hadn't i didn't know that and, and, and you're making me you're reminding me that I, I wouldn't have talked to you to be honest 10 years ago because i would have been absolutely terrified and i probably would have blamed you know you as one of the journalists because I would have, the riff in my head would have been, yeah, you can't just trust journalists because they're indiscreet. But actually, it's not, I don't think that's fair. I think it's also that, you know, like a politician, um, I have learnt to be a little bit more sort of knowledgeable in a way and also skillful and not talking about what I don't want to talk about. Um, and it's true, I will, and I also, actually, I've, I've kind of, I got a little bit more, um, I trust myself a little bit more to be discerning about which journalists to talk to. So I'm really excited to talk to you because I feel like you're interested not just in the skullduggery. And um, I think there can be collusion sometimes between journalists and politicians who want to get a scalp uh, from the other party. And so I I now realise, actually, no, I can talk to journalists who are kind of interested in how the place works. Um, because I don't feel like you're going to try and catch me out. But it's also my, it's up to me as well, uh, not to just kind of spill with a whole lot of inappropriate nonsense um, about particular individuals. It's interesting. I mean, that point about trust in journalism, uh, you know, I I am fascinated by this because I think it's certainly also around the time of the expenses scandal and afterwards, there there was... Uh, a lot of sort of piety, I think, in the profession about how awful, awfully people had behaved, um, but also a a sense of of conflict, thinking you know, that we had developed relationships, intimacy with this institution. We were more understanding, I think, of how they'd got into that that place. Uh, I think if you want to find a group of people who think on balance, probably MPs deserve a pay rise. uh, And it's ludicrous that they can't just award themselves one because they work very, very hard. And it's a really stressful job. You know, you're going to struggle to find that opinion out in the country. I think you'd easily find it in a group of journalists who do do actually see quite what a grim life it can be being an MP and how it ruins their mental health, it ruins their relationships, it drives them to drink. I mean, it's a, it's a terrible gig in many respects. And it's amazing that that so many of them want to do it. Um, But at the same time, that relationship, which has an element of mutual understanding in it, is also transactional. Ultimately, there's a group of people, the politicians who have information, uh, and a group of people who want it, the journalists, and a trade goes on. Uh, and the, the the politicians might have all sorts of motives for for giving that information. They might just want to do over an enemy by passing on you know, something scurrilous or revealing some scandal. They might want to persuade their own side of something by getting an argument out. Or when it's a well-connected journalist, it might just be a straight swap of gossip. Like, I can tell you this thing that I know from my side, but I know that you're speaking to a bunch of other people. So what have you heard? So there's this, it's a, it's a very odd social climate, which is part, uh, you know, raw trading floor bargaining and part uh, human sympathy. 
I haven't got to the bottom of it at all, to be honest. No, I, I absolutely agree. I mean, I think we both perform um, an important function in democracy. When I say we, I mean journalists and researchers. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I personally don't perform a very important thing. <laughs> I think about my industry, I'm, I think, does. But yeah, I'll, I'll yeah, use yeah, myself. Yeah, collectively, I think yeah. you do. I think, it's, I think it's really vital to kind of shine the light on the bits that are not seen and to try and shine it in a way that reveals something different. So, you know, the people who are scrutinising need to try, in a way, keep a sense of movement about what politics entails and what is going on. But there are there are dangers. I mean, I agree that the lobby correspondents, I think, were kind of locked into these relationships where it was very difficult uh, to write about things that should have been written about, like, I mean, I actually think the whole treatment of the mortgages, you know, the fact that they could uh, pay off their mortgages and then keep the house, that slightly boring kind of collective pattern was really problematic. But the journalists who actually exposed the expenses scandal sometimes did get things terribly badly wrong. The famous duck moat was never actually a claim. He did not get money for the duck moat. He was he was actually, in a way, kind of guilty of a slightly different um, phenomenon, which was just leaving it up to the officials. So there was a huge kind of plastic bag full of receipts hand, handed over. The duck moat was in the receipts and the person said, you know, you decide what's what's eligible. It was a bit of an unhappy tale. I think it, it did need to happen. Even without the added heat of the expenses scandal, the average MP is subjected to a huge amount of pressure, scrutiny. They're vulnerable to, to really prurient intrusion. And it does make me wonder whether it's an existence that has an attraction that I just can't quite fathom. Is it a certain type of character or personality that is drawn to politics or, or does is there something intrinsic to the way you have to behave and be in politics that turns people into a particular type of character? And here I'm thinking about the, the, the thickening of the skin that has to go on if you're engaged in, in as rough a business as politics is and how that interacts with with your capacity for empathy and compassion? I think quite a lot of that thick skin is highly performative. And so you can you can have the display of a very thick skin in one context um, and you, you have to kind of learn the skills, you know, like a, like a, somebody in a theatre. You, you need to still the show must go on. You, you need to perform the play, even if you've got serious inner turmoil going on. Um, so I think it's easy to exaggerate the, the thick skin. But the the thing that I do think is amplified in politicians is their their need for recognition. You know, this struggle for recognition, there's a brilliant philosopher, um, Axel Honneth, who's written about this, um, uh, is something that, that politicians all share. And, and some of them don't handle that very well. And, and we can misunderstand it as well. By that, you, you mean that need for to feel that yourself is somehow validated by approval from others, that you sort of only fully exist as reflected in the approving gaze of an imagined audience. Exactly that. Exactly that. And it's partly about how you think of yourself, but they it's it's about seeking self-esteem through the minds of others. So, of course, you you are particularly craving um, affirmation from some people more than other people. So, and I think when you want to look at the rhythms of, of politicians' work, in a way, they do get very drawn to where they want affirmation. So they do get, they want affirmation to the affirmation of journalists because you have access to, and now, you know, social media influencers because uh, you have access to such huge audiences. Um, but then they also want, affirmation from their dad or whatever you know they are human beings who still have hang-ups and baggage from you know years ago so there's I think a, a real mixture but where they where you when you watch them where they go I think does reveal who they're trying to get affirmation and and uh, applause from oh uh, yeah and, and and the tensions between therefore getting affirmation from your tribe so you know, being loved by your party uh, is a is a distinct will, or will require a different set of actions and behaviours to getting the 
affirmation of an electoral mandate, which might not need to happen for another three or four years. Um, but you have to say and do very different things for those two different, as it were, currencies of, of recognition and all sorts of tensions and problems arise from that. Well, exactly. And I, I think this is all true. These pulls are going on. But I think to sort of stop going completely mad, politicians do also need some sort of continuity. So this endless adjustment to these different audiences they're trying to impress. One of the things that Chris Bryant, uh, Labour MP, told me is that he thinks that when politicians are performing, they look as if they're continually changeable, but actually there are uh, there is a kind of core in what they're saying when they really mind about an issue. So he described what it's like as being a bit like a jazz musician. You have riffs. And uh, so he, he was an expert on pensions and he had he had a 30 second riff. He had a one minute riff, you know, 20 minute an hour, whatever. So you kind of do need to keep that core view about what's best for pensions. But you need to improvise um, and, you know, adjust the way you talk. You can get really technical with with pension experts. But, you know, when you're talking to your constituents, uh, you you need to speak in a much more accessible way. So you do have these riffs. And they're complicated by the fact that they're not only your own passion, but they're also things that your constituents mind about, your party minds about, uh, you know, you're you're catching some zeitgeist or whatever. So there there are continuities, I think. And I think there's, you know, this kind of the performance of being a politician um, is both a mixture of trying to be authentic, but also adjusting. And I think the stress that you have to undergo to be as you've described, switching between those different zones, but also calibrating the audience. I would remember seeing a, a recent TV interview with, uh, I think it was Robert Buckland, uh, trying to defend uh, the government's decision to repudiate the withdrawal agreement. And he's a, you know, he's a solicitor and a lawyer and a justice secretary. Uh, and it and it was once a very passionate Remainer as well. It can't at all have been comfortable for him. Um, to do this. And he was obviously floundering. It's one of those TV interviews where you see someone really suffering from the inability to articulate something that they probably deep down don't think is a good idea. Uh, and then about, you know, about half a minute into this this floundering, he, he sort of got to the bit of the script that he knew verbatim, that was the, or very obviously the line to take. He will have had it text to him by a whip or possibly from direct from number 10 say this is what we're saying about this and the relief in his voice it was it was like a man who'd sort of fallen overboard and was just disappearing beneath the water of his own thoughts and words and then just finding this bit of driftwood that he could hold on to and that was, again he had this riff and it's like okay now i know where i am and it was fascinating to just to watch that sort of this change in his voice and his eyes when that happened. It's so interesting, isn't it? And and of course, it's got more complicated because politicians are so exposed. So if they do say different things in different contexts, um, you can catch them out so easily now. Um, but the other thing I, I think is that, you know, we exaggerate how much this is uniquely um, something that politicians do because we all have to do this. We have to do this in, in any organisation. I think if you've had that experience of being part of a team and if you aspire to work democratically at all, then actually, you know, a lot of us have been in that situation where you have to put the argument uh, that, you know, in a lawyer-like way that you, you don't necessarily agree with. But it's interesting how furious we get at politicians for doing this. That's such a good point, isn't it? We're always doing that. And we all have the cognitive ability to do it. As we know, um, at a very basic level, you know, you could, we've all, anyone who's a, a sports fan, at least, will be familiar with watching your own team commit, someone on your own team commit an egregious foul and get sent off. And you have to simultaneously be outraged that they've been sent off. And somewhere you know that there was a foul and they deserve to be sent off. Or, you know, you say that was never a penalty. And then you watch the replay and you have to think, well, it kind of was actually a penalty. Who are we kidding? And, and I'm fascinated by the way I think different people are able to to either hold those contradictory impulses in their head at the same time or so repress the uncomfortable one that I, I, I actually I don't know whether they're even conscious of it anymore. And in politics, I would love to know, you know, walking around the commons or looking in the debates or seeing people on television, you know, to what extent are they are they consciously 
balancing these things and how or how far have they actually repressed beyond even awareness uh, that bit of them that knows that this, they're, they're, they disagree with what they're saying? I find that politicians really, really love talking about this kind of thing because they don't reflect that much in my experience. They don't really get a chance. So actually, I don't know if you find when you're talking to them that it can turn into really quite long sessions sometimes because they they find it almost, I think, therapeutic trying to work out what it is that's going on. And they're constantly dealing with all these contradictions and ambiguities. And if you have a bit of tolerance for that, um, then I think they they find that such a relief. I mean, I've I've sometimes found myself in, you know, interviews that I thought were going to be about half an hour and they've turned into three or four hours. Um, and I think that that is indicative of the fact that, that MPs don't have enough time to be reflective. I think that's a difference between what you do and what I do. I, I have had I have known politicians well enough where I can get an insight into that. But uh, that's something that going back to what you were saying earlier in terms of which audience you show, which side of yourself, the fear of revealing the, the sort of paralysis of ambivalence to a journalist is very, very profound. It's seen as such a dangerous thing to do, to say, you know, I simply don't know, or my leader wants me to do this, but I just don't feel it's right. That is, that is so, that is kept in a compartment of the politician's mind and vocabulary that is very rarely shown to the journalist. Well, what do we do about that? This is, this is the thing that really worries me. I want people who've, who've got a real sort of interest and tolerance and ability to handle things like ambiguity and contradictions. And, you know, I think they make, they can be people who have a good sense of judgment. But, you know, you're not rewarded for that. And we've got this these this rise of politicians around the world who are not necessarily consistent, but they're certainly not prepared to show, uh, you know, a kind of complex understanding of ambiguity to put it at its most polite. Um, so I really worry about what politicians are, are going to kind of step up in the coming years. And I wonder whether I don't know the answer to this, but I wonder whether we've got some function as people who are kind of mediating and trying to explain about politics, have we got some function in encouraging um, the politicians that we want? Yeah, well, and to say that it's okay to not know, or at least to be working it out a bit as you go along. I mean, that's obviously a, a high risk thing in, in certain situations. But now I agree that the, yeah, certainly from a media perspective, the requirement to create environments in which politicians can think aloud and say well maybe this or maybe this my rival here has got a point but I wouldn't emphasize it that way I mean I've seen this in just in terms of being booked to do tv punditry where you will get the call uh, and someone will say well we've we've got one person who's going to come on and they're going to be uh opposing the badger call uh so could you maybe come on and be the person who hates and wants to kill all the badgers? And I say, well, I, but I, that's not me. I don't, I don't really have strong feelings about badgers today. So I don't want to be that person. Um, but the need, the need or the template that exists, you know, someone's going to argue X. And so the other person has to be everything but X, I think has really needs to be broken down before politicians are going to feel comfortably comfortable saying there is an unavoidable ambivalence here and we need to work through it. I think it's a fascinating challenge that, you know, a lot of the way that we do politics in the UK uh, is, you know, this very kind of antagonistic mode. And it is pretty exciting. And actually, you know, that there's that uh, political theorist Chantal Mouffe. She writes about how actually if you, you need some clear statements, kind of antagonistic statements. You need parties to take very, very different views, because otherwise, as citizens, how are we going to make decisions about whether to support that lot or that lot? You know, if it's all nuance and um, ambivalence and whatever, then we, we might all get a bit lost. On the other hand, when you've got TV programmes and radio programmes that just seem to be kind of mimicking the over simple polarities, which also I think can get really boring. You know, I just feel like, well, maybe we all need to be a bit more creative. I mean, can't we have more narratives and stories and find a different way of identifying drama 
you know, drama doesn't have to be antagonism. You can develop a sense of suspense about politics. And actually, in a way, Brexit was, it for me, kind of lurched between being deadly dull and repetitive, but then at other times being really, really dramatic, um, partly because it was so complex. I've used up an awful lot of your time and we really have to stop soon. So I'm just going to, with a final question, come back to something we were talking about earlier, which is the that difficulty for politicians of, of moving in and out of the different modes of their being. And we touched on this a little bit when we talked about, um, you mentioned social media, I think. And it strikes me that this is something completely new, both for in the psychology and also imagine the, the anthropology of the environment that these people are operating in, which is that feeling of being always on, that you can't now have that sense of, uh, yeah, there's a there's a sort of a backstage where I, I loosen my tie or put my feet up or, you know, back in the old days, probably smoked a cigarette, uh, and a front stage where I have my makeup on and the lights are bright and I'm performing. Uh, through Twitter and Facebook, I, I'm, I'm sort of allowing the front stage me or, or, or what people are perceiving as that backstage and it's it's making it very must make it very very hard for everyone in this business to stay sane essentially i really agree with you i think it creates an incredible um stress and it's interesting how that shows up i mean one of the sad things that i i found about politicians is that they're so frightened of this kind of exposure and they're so distrustful that they take it out on the people who are really close to them so they do they can be really inept as managers sometimes and they can be um quite abusive to those that they really really trust um particularly their own staff but also you know the staff of parliament um and so i think you know it's it's come out into the media it's brewing somewhat but i think it could become really really um you know quite quite a significant sort of scandal and the scandal has various elements including the fact that as a society we're really really failing um to kind of deal with mental health so i really hope that the whole issue of bullying and abuse um and uh, cruelty between us all because actually it's quite shocking who gets involved with all this. Um, I really hope we find much, much cleverer and subtler ways of dealing with it. And that's one area where, uh, and regular listeners to the podcast will know, we always look for the optimistic when, while also sounding terribly gloomy. Um, that's one area where I think I am quite optimistic, although it's been very difficult the last few years. Uh, and... Uh, online that the situation is terrible in terms of the abuse that people suffer but the increased levels of fluency and the articulation on the floor of the house of commons now of these questions of, of mental health uh, and society and what is actually what, what are the pressures and how mps in their traditional capacity as representatives have become better able to stand up and say yes I too uh, experienced this I too suffered from this and I can now represent be that voice uh, there have been some really powerful moments uh, with regard to that um, both you know domestic violence domestic abuse alcohol abuse that I think do give grounds for thinking what you know hopefully you know, we are still going to get people coming through and being politicians and being MPs who are just able to be a good public emblem for the society that they represent and articulate it in ways that make a difference. That might sound hopelessly naive, but I, uh, on a good day, I can think that you know we're working towards, we're making progress at least in that regard. I am such a passionate optimist in the face of what feels like very deep crises in every direction. So. I do agree with you. And I think actually um, it's very nice to have had a conversation where we've scarcely mentioned COVID. But I think that has made us rethink our priorities. You know, it's interesting how we've kind of spent a lot more time in our private spaces and with our families and MPs included. So 
you know, I think that might help. But I do also really worry about making the kind of work of politicians bearable. Um, so I, I do. I, I just thought one of the best, best debates I heard in, in the House of Commons ever was a backbench debate where MPs talked about their own challenges with mental health. It was astounding. And um, Charles Walker made a fabulous speech about OCD, for example. And I think actually everyone really admired him for it. Uh, and I think his his reputation increased. At a time of great polarisation, those are the occasions when MPs from another party will, will sort of rise out of their tribal trench and say, admirable contribution by you know, the honourable member from somewhere that doesn't isn't represented by my party. Emma, Crew and I then carried on talking for quite a long time. Uh, maybe some of that will appear in a bonus episode of Politics on the Couch, but uh, we can't tax your ears for too long. Uh, but I do, again, want to thank Emma so much for giving me so much of her time for a really interesting conversation. I should mention also that she's got a new book coming out, uh, An Anthropology of Parliament, Entanglements in Democratic Politics. That's published next year and is certain to be really interesting. We will be back uh, sooner than next year, uh, quite a lot sooner uh, in the coming weeks. Uh, I imagine between now and then, I won't be doing much other than feeling anxious about the US presidential election and its outcome. Uh, and I wouldn't at all be surprised if that ends up being the topic of our next podcast, because I think it will be pretty hard to think about much else as that comes into view. I hope people listening to this manage to be a bit more relaxed than I'm now sounding about that. Now that I've, I was in a really very ebullient mood earlier, uh, and I'm going to salvage the feelings of optimism I got from the end of that conversation with Emma Crew and try and force myself to be relaxed. It's the weekend. We've been given a bonus hour because the clocks went back. Uh, we've now given you a podcast pretty much fits neatly into that slot. That's what you can do with your bonus hour. If you listen this far, that's what you have done with your bonus hour. So thank you very, very much for listening. Uh, tune in again to the next episode. Phil in Hove, thank you for producing and editing out all my crazy rambling metaphors that failed. And that's it. <laughs>